From feeling invisible to being visible, we've all been there. Even I've felt invisible for the majority of my life. So what does it really take to stand out in today's overcrowded world? Well, join me and Jamie Mustard for a conversation that will help you understand the art and science, yes, science, of standing out. In this episode, you're going to learn what it takes to shift from being seen to being remembered, what dilution means and how it's making it harder for people to notice you, the real mental impact of feeling unseen and unheard, why complex and complicated messaging is actually pushing people away instead of drawing them in, and the importance of using what Jamie calls blocks to gain the visibility you desire. Jamie Mustard is an expert on perception in popular culture, a strategic multimedia consultant, art design and product futurist, creative artist, and iconist. He has codified the primal laws of what makes anything iconic, the anatomy of what causes any idea, art, or message to stand out and take hold in the human mind across any medium. His breakout work, The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out, is winner of the OWL Award, awarded by the largest e-commerce bookseller in the world. His work and passion is to teach the science and art of obviousness, helping professionals, change agents, artists, and businesses confidently and at will make their messages, brands, and ideas stand out to their desired audiences. Thought leaders, this is an episode you want to make sure you listen to if you have been struggling with feeling invisible and make sure you tune in till the end because Jamie drops some real simplified and easy to digest and apply information that is going to help you stand out. Now, whether you are new to the podcast or you're a loyal thought leader, please make sure you take a moment right now, just hit pause to download a few episodes and drop a rating and review on iTunes. This is going to help me get this message out to more leaders around the world. Now, if you have a future topic suggestion or you just want to text me, go ahead and text me 1781-336-0160. And if you have any questions or you just want to say what's up or connect online, please reach out to me on social media. My handle is at I am Ruby and my favorite places to hang out are Twitter and Instagram. Now it is time to dive into the art of standing out with Jamie Mustard. Welcome to today's Thought Leader, where I'm challenging you to rise up, speak up, and create a movement. I'm your host, Ruby Fremont, and I'm here as a catalyst for you, the new generation of thought leaders. I'm a kick-ass life coach, a bullshit detector, and courageous communicator. I'll show you how to gain visibility, build a cult following, and create impact while increasing your income. Join me every week as I dive into raw and real conversations that will help you amplify your presence, influence, and impact. It's time to unapologetically do what you're here to do and do it your way. So get ready, thought leaders, and let's make shit happen. Hey, thought leaders, I'm back with an episode that I have been highly, highly anticipating. And uh, for good reason, you're going to find out really soon. Um, so without going too far into it, I just want to introduce to you our very special guest today, Jamie Mustard, the author of The Iconist, The Art and, and Science of Standing Out, which is an amazing book. I'll have the link to that and more in the show notes. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm truly excited to be here. It's crazy because we just met a few weeks ago on Zoom due to an introduction by Dove Barron, and we both know Dove, and when he introduces people, there's a reason, uh, and I quickly found out that our work is very aligned. Um, we do very similar, our message is very similar, but different, um, and you, you support people in the art of standing out with strategy, but what I love about you and the book 
is that the strategy doesn't feel like bro marketing. It feels like you ground it into a genuine, authentic or transparent energy. And I'm wondering if that was intentional or if you're a fan of the bro marketing techniques. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me start off uh, by saying this. Well, I first, first of all, I think that you and I both come for lack of a better expression, you could say have dark pasts. So I, I kind of rose out of very, uh, difficult and uh, troubling circumstances. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we live in a world now where we're so overloaded with content that that no matter who you are, it's harder to get attention more than ever before. Well, I grew up in a world where as a, as a child, I was due to poverty and my geography, I was incredibly invisible. Mm -hmm. So as I've come out of that and come through very, very ridiculous circumstances to do it, um, and established myself, uh, I don't forget what that feeling is, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, yeah, technically my book is a business book, mm-hmm. it's, uh, but um, I want it, I think people want to connect to something that has a soul and has mm-hmm. meaning and has a heart. So I worked very hard to make it conversational mm-hmm. and to have stories in it that people can, I mean, people learn through story. And there's a lot of research in there, but I, I, I wanted to tell stories that people would want to keep reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned your story because, um, well, why don't you just share a little bit about your story? Cause I think it's really interesting and it'll provide context for our listeners. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in severe abject poverty, um, mm-hmm. in near down in and around downtown Los Angeles. And I, uh, suffered from neglect illiteracy, medical issues. I spent part of my childhood in and out of inst- the early, my early childhood in and out of kind of institutional environments. I, I was illiterate, semi-literate. I, re- I read really well, mm-hmm. but I was going into my late teens in terms of math and writing, probably uh, I was very semi-literate, maybe mm-hmm. second grade level, maybe even lower than that. So I went, so I overcame that in my late teens. I went from being semi-literate, at least as far as human expression and writing is concerned, to graduating from the London School of Economics in just over five years. So mm-hmm. that was quite a departure. Like I was, I went, <laughs> so that, that, that's just a very dramatic, and then now my life now is kind of insane. I mean, I, <laughs> I consult some of the, I, uh, uh, some of the most successful CEOs, of Fortune 100 companies, big brands like Nike and Adidas, um, Intel, um, uh, artists of all ilk, including fa- uh, famous people that you would have heard of mm-hmm. on, the subje- on the subject of, of standing out. So uh, it, I am a pretty unlikely human in terms of where I started and mm-hmm. where I am. I never thought that I would be here. And I can pretty much guarantee that uh, if I can do it, uh, everyone can do it. You right. know, I wasn't necessarily the most charming person. I always thought that you kind of had to be anointed to be successful and right. eventually figured out that no one was coming along to anoint me mm-hmm. <laughs> so that I would, I would need to anoint myself. Yeah. And, and it's, and, yeah. And, and that, um, I think a lot of people wait for that. Right. And what's, what I find the most interesting piece about your story is the fact that you were amongst, you know, living in poverty, especially in a city like LA, you are amongst the population that feels and is treated, quote unquote, like they're invisible. Yeah. And, yeah. and now um, you're, you're visible, but not just that, you're sh- showing people how to gain that visibility. Um, but you know what it's like to feel invisible. And I think now, like you said, like there's, an, our, our world is filled with a lot of content like there's a lot of stuff being thrown our way and it makes it harder to stand out which leads people to feeling invisible leads people to feeling like they're not being heard they're not being seen um on top of all the other things that they're facing in just like their real lives uh so i love that you've experienced that yourself and that's you know part of why you're doing what you're doing 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really think I put it together um, till really I was finishing the book in a lot of ways. I think mm -hmm. that my path was just forward motion, don't look back. As you, you know, poverty is, I grew up mostly in Hispanic neighborhoods. And so I was just a mixed race. I was just one of a million brown boys. And if you were driven by, I would have faded into the brick. Mm -hmm. And uh, poverty has a, it's like a, God, how do you describe it? It's, it's like a limb mm -hmm. <laughs> that, uh, that you think you have to have for the rest of your life that kind of right. never goes away. And that, that's the biggest trick of all is that that's the biggest reason I think a lot of people don't cross class and rise mm -hmm. is because you only know the circumstances to which you are accustomed. Mm. So the idea of reaching for more or believing that you're worthy of more uh, can be a very, very difficult thing. But my, and so I never assumed that I would be able to waft that off me. I, quite honestly, I was, I was very surprised when I started to realize was that when I was at London School of Economics that I mm -hmm. realized that people weren't reading poverty on me because I could read it on anybody because mm -hmm. I grew up in it. I could smell it, mm -hmm. right? So I, was, I thought, God, this isn't reading on me. What does that mean? What does that mean for things I can do and even more opportunity? Um, but again, I didn't put it together till later. I, my, for the first, uh, my whole goal in life was just more, <laughs> away mm -hmm. from pain, away from difficulty, away from struggle towards... Uh, uh, something that would occupy my mind, relief, uh, uh, pleasure, learning. You know, I was just trying to get away from where I was. And yeah. so it was, I wasn't, you know, I, and I was very trepidatious when I started, when I was writing the book about not including my story. I thought mm -hmm. I just, I went to a very serious school for economics. I got a degree in uh, economics and a special subject in economic history. And I found that what I thought was this legitimate pattern that, that revolves around the economics of attention. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to stand on its own two feet and have nothing to do with me. I thought Malcolm Gladwell doesn't need to tell his story and Dan Pink doesn't need to tell his story. So mm -hmm. I was very not wanting to tell my story. Mm -hmm. And, um, but at some point during the editing process, uh, I wrote the introduction and I started to, uh, bring more of that into it um, because it became clear to me once I was once I'd been I'd been working with this idea for almost 15 years so mm -hmm. once I got to a point where I felt secure in it it became kind of obvious to me that I had Houdini'd myself out of some situations and that these are constraints that a lot of human beings uh, run into mm -hmm. no matter their class and that um, I had codified these constraints as primal laws of standing out and that uh, everyone of every class could benefit from them. And um, not only, uh, and that they weren't subjective, that they were objective. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, if people, if I, if I, if I'm willing to share my story, um, people will connect with me more. And, uh, but I was, I was very, I was not willing to look at it literally until the book finalization process, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah, and that's, it. I love that. So this is what connected us for me personally, right? Like for me, when I look at people talking about how to stand out, offering strategies to be seen for visibility, I kind of, er, you know, like put the brakes on a little bit and hesitate because I'm like, okay, is this just going to be another cookie cutter strategy that's coming out of something that is going to lean on someone's weakness and prey on victims in <laughs> oh i hear you you know what but, i mean and yeah, then yeah. but sharing your story anchored it into a why it's important um and then of course the science that you share backs it up which is super interesting and and re really eye-opening to read and one of the first things that stood out to me in the book was this line being noticed is the first step to success being remembered is the next and I feel like that's where people miss the mark is they don't focus on the longevity. They just want like the quick ROI, the quick hit, the quick um, visibility, the spotlight for a moment. They don't think about the longevity or the long game or, or the relationships or the, you know, how am I going to be remembered? They don't well, think about you, that at all. It's really true. And for, first off, the, the first third of the book or so, I talk about this 
concept of what I call dilution. And dilution is this thing that's occurred over the last 40 years with as technology has improved. Uh, uh, maybe I could say even, I would even go as far back as 50 years. Um, that we're, as more and more, te as technology's increased and more and more data is thrown at us, and more, there's more and more choice in data and population in the world, we become smaller. It's harder and harder for us to have a voice. Meaning, if I were a carpenter uh, or a baker, I use this example sometimes, and in, in a small town in 1950s North America, I might have been competing with three other bakers in my town. Mm -hmm. uh, today, because of the internet, the fact that you can order baked goods online, I'm competing with 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 bakers. Mm -hmm. I've become smaller. We can all feel it. We feel this angst and anxiety mm -hmm. about being smaller, but we don't know what it is. We just know something's wrong. We know we have something special to offer the world maybe, but we can't get the traction. So yeah, I mean, one thing is what you just said. So in my journey from invisibility to visibility, mm -hmm. I, I've codified these primal laws that can help anyone magnetize and grab attention, okay? Mm -hmm. um, these are the laws of what I call blocks, mm -hmm. which we'll get into. Um, and you use them in repetition and you can cause anything to become, I, I magnetize attention and become iconic in the mind of another person in a matter of minutes with at deliberation and at will, rather than over you know 50 years, like with you know luck or chance or, uh, just accident or coincidence. You can cause something to become iconic uh, with a simple object, with these simple objective uh, laws. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. And this is, yeah. uh, but, but again, it all centers around the fact that we all feel scarcity of, when they, the co-founder of Fast Company, Bill Taylor, reviewed my book, he said, uh, scarcity of attention is the defining business challenge of our time. I would say scarcity of attention is the defining business and social challenge of our time. Mm -hmm. um, all of this, like, and, and again, just to get, like, let me just talk a little bit more about the dilution. Is that okay? Just give some yeah, specifics of course. on this. Okay. So I give this 1950s example again. If you were just an average person, no matter where you are in the world, walking around in your life, going to the grocery store, going to the office, doing your, living your life uh, with your job, you would be subject to about 250 advertising messages a day hmm. by 1970 was 500 advertising messages a day. By the late 90s, the last time somebody really tried to add this up, uh, it was five to 7,000 advertising messages a day. In fact, there was a woman doing research for Microsoft and Apple uh, in 1998 uh, named Linda Stone, and she coined the term continuous partial attention mm -hmm. to talk about how we were all being bombarded with so much content that we were only partially paying attention. Mm. Now, there's been a lot of books about this. A lot of people have talked about this. Mm -hmm. uh, what makes the iconist different and my perspective different is I've been less concerned with the fact that we're all bombarded, with, we all, that, which is something we all know, right. or concerned with if the person I'm trying to talk to is so bombarded that they can't talk to me or look at me or truly engage to me, mm -hmm. what is that doing to me? What is it doing to me psychologically? What is that doing to me mentally? What is that doing to me spiritually? And, there, and in my work and research, I found that there's actually devastating psychological effects that occur when we feel like we have something of true value to offer the world and we can't get anyone to give us just that 10 minutes and then they would know. Mm -hmm. So there's that aspect. I teach you about how to get that 10 minutes mm -hmm. based on these very simple uh, laws that anyone can deploy, mm -hmm. but then... I, you know, the world revolves with complex information. We have to, there, we have science and medicine mm -hmm. and policy and all these very complex things that we need for the world to function and improve. So there's a, there's a way that we magnetize attention. And then I also talk about once you've got that magnetized attention, uh, how do you maintain and hook that attention uh, and sink it in so that it stays with you. And it's a, uh, again, very um, lots of different uh, social science and brain science in the book that explains how and, and why it works. Yeah, definitely. There's, um, I mean, you go into great detail on the blocks in the book, um, and I'd love for you to provide 
a Cliff Notes version here. And then for our listeners, they can definitely get the book. I highly recommend it and go through it themselves. Um, but I want to preface that with another line from the book because um, I think it's really important. And it was the ability to express yourself and the ability to be heard are two very different things. And isn't that the truth, right? <laughs> like we learn, uh, I think for a long time, we as human beings struggle with expressing ourselves because of our upbringing or being told like we're too much, we can't do this, we can't do that. We, you know, we're programmed to play small. And then we, we unleash our voices, we find our truth, we start speaking up, but then there's still that missing piece of, of but then how do we be, how are we, going to be heard by the people that need to hear us in a world that is cluttered with noise, with um, media, with uh, distractions, with advertising and all of that. And so what I love about, um, you know, the, the primal laws and the blocks is that you offer a way to cut through that. Um, so I'd love. Yeah. I mean, let me put a stamp on the dilution thing. Yeah. I was mentioning the Linda Stone thing, right? So mm -hmm. I'd say two more things about this concept of dilution, and then I'll get into like a Cliff's Notes version of blocks. How does that sound? That sounds great. Okay, so um, I said at 19, as late as 1998, we were up to five to 7,000 ads a day, okay? A human being couldn't process a thousand. Hell no. So th th this is how, how people are engaging with you, right? Mm -hmm. um, There's some thought experiments done in the last few years since the rise of social media that estimate that those numbers probably are somewhere between 10 to 15,000, maybe more advertising messages a day. Wow. Okay. Um, and so you become a smaller and smaller tree, 250, okay? Maybe like you were seven bakers in your town in North America, and now you're competing with thousands, if not tens of thousands. It doesn't matter how good or great you are. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna be seen in that. Mm -hmm. That's what I call, um, again, uh, dilution. One of the one of the examples I give in terms of this is the the people the people that you're trying to communicate to. This is how you have to think of them. This is what they're experiencing. If I threw a golf ball at you, mm -hmm. Ruby, you would catch it. Mm -hmm. okay? If I threw three golf balls at you, maybe it would be kind of awkward, but you would catch it. Right. If I threw ten thousand golf balls at you, mm -hmm. um, you would cower. You would turn away. Mm -hmm. And you would become, you, you, you just become protective. So as we rely on all this small communication mm -hmm. to communicate with people with text messaging and emails and ads and this thing that accumulates into the 15,000 a day, we also are subconsciously kind of numb to it and kind mm -hmm. of also pushing it away at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting thing uh, that we are all experiencing and there's actually so i i'll talk about the mental effects of that and then i'll talk about blocks the solution okay so the mental effects um in 2004 there was a a, a book came out uh, there was there's a writer um a professor at skidmore university skidmore university skidmore college excuse me a professor of social theory and a psychologist a guy named barry schwartz and he came out with a book called the paradox of choice. And he backs, basically talks about how there's the, that we have so much choice now. This is 2004, before Facebook, mm -hmm. before Twitter, before Instagram, right? 2004. Mm -hmm. There was so much choice that we're, 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 I mean, again, you could, it applies to everything. Items in a supermarket in 1950, around 8,000, 9,000. Items in a supermarket today, over 50,000. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, what gets more attention? The, the right. supermarket. Each item get more attention in, in the supermarket with the 50,000 or the 8,000. Well, that's mm -hmm. every human being on earth now multiplied. Mm. So he talks in this book about the negative effects of choice. And he basically says, when we have too many choices to make, we become paralyzed. We won't make any choice at all because we don't want to make the wrong choice. We're anxious about choice. What if I make the wrong choice? We're ultimately dissatisfied. We make a choice and they think, God, you know, what if I chose the other one? Mm -hmm. And then we ultimately can become depressed about choice. So there's a yeah. tremendous amount of us with all of this connective technology, we're more isolated physically than we ever have before. Definitely. I mean, you had COVID to that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why you see these teen suicide rates, teen depression rates, mm -hmm. all of this, they call it, you know, social, uh, what are they? 
uh, social media, social connectivity. They call it connecting, mm -hmm. but we're more isolated on a physical plane than we've ever been before. And, and 100%. Yeah. And I've found that the feeling that you're not going to be heard has the exact same psychological traits as trying to make a choice when there's too many choices to make. If I don't feel like I'm going to be heard, I won't even try. So I'm paralyzed. No one's going to hear me. I have the best mm -hmm. idea ever. And I know that I'm the best coach or I'm the best this or I'm the best that. But since no one's ever going to hear me, why should I even try? Mm -hmm. Then they have a tremendous amount of anxiety about, are people going to hear me? Are people, yeah. will I be heard? Um, this is, um, then people are dissatisfied with their lives and ultimately depressed because they have, we validate ourselves. We find meaning in, in life through um, people seeing us. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, recognition, right? Definitely. I mean, I'm especially in North America in the Western world. We go to a party. No one says who you are. They don't say, who are you? What are mm -hmm. you about? What are your passions? Which is what we should say at cocktail right. parties. We, should, we say, what do you do? Yeah. Right. And that's a really scary question because there's surveys that show that in, in the United States, 85% um, of Americans are dissatisfied with their jobs. Yet mm -hmm. when they go to a cocktail party, what do you do? Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, I wrote a business book, but I'm deeply connect. But one of the things that I found when I first started doing this almost 15 years ago is I was just I had, a, had different names and I was uh, kind of beta testing it on different companies and just using it as a social science. I thought I'll be in the next Malcolm Gladwell, you know, mm -hmm. then 15 years later. Right. Um, but what I what would happen is I bring this these tool, the, the, I do the work and I bring these magnetic icons or blocks to um, uh, the CEO and their face would change. Mm. And I'd say, wait, something's going on here beyond just a social science because I, I realize this isn't just their business that I'm help, where I'm helping them be seen. This is their, they built, maybe they built this business. They're an engineer that built a manufacturing company. It's their life's work. It pays their mortgage. It's their kid's college. It's their identity in the mm -hmm. world. And so I found, I started seeing this pattern when I would do this, whether it was for a $10 million company or a $5 billion company, that it would literally change the physical appearance and mood of the people that I was bringing these magnetic um, icons to that would cause people to notice them. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I better talk about that <laughs> when I write about it beyond beyond the business side, because it's right. important, you know, it's important. Um, so, I mean, yeah, so you want me to talk about uh, this concept of blocks, which sounds a lot more complicated than it is. Right, yeah, so, exactly. Right. Let's preface it with that. This sounds really complicated, but <laughs> <laughs> Jamie's going to break it down in a way that's going to feel like you can put it into play in your own business. Yeah, you'll be able to, at the end of this conversation, walk away and, and use it. Yeah, and, and I will also add to that, that the book is going to provide you is going to act as like the handbook to support you in doing this and making it happen. <laughs> yes. It's the most complicated concept in the whole book. What we're about to get into. And the good news about that is it's still really fucking simple. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah, one thing I found out in economic schools that they would come up with lots of really fancy terms yes five really simple things mm -hmm. and that's the trick of the educated to make education seem you know less obtainable for those people for the lower classes you know mm -hmm. i mean there's a history of the of the church using that right making mm -hmm. you know making it seem more complicated than it is so uh my book is very easy to read one of the things that i was trying to do when i wrote it was what can i do that that is uniquely me and again this is where our work aligns where you'd be like I would look at my heroes like Dan Pink or Michael Lewis or Malcolm Gladwell, people that I feel like are just amazing. And I would ask myself, okay, what, what's different about me? What, you know, what can I do? Is there anything that I can do that's better than them? I'll never be as good as them, but is there anything that I can do that's uniquely me in terms of the way that I approach my work um, that would be better than them? And then if I get halfway there, I'll be good enough, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I, uh, I realized when I made that decision is I, I feel like that these guys have amazing ideas um, and that I feel like I could write in a really simple conversational way, not use the fancy terms, mm -hmm. 
tell really fun pop culture stories that a whole class of people that maybe wouldn't normally read a book like Blink would uh, read my book, but I would still get those people that would read Blink and Drive mm-hmm. and When and the, the, the books of my the people yeah. that I admire so much. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's in that way I, I worked, it's very much a choice to make it very conversational. And uh, okay, so blocks, let's talk about blocks. Let's get into the meat of this. Okay, a block is something simple. I take that term from what happens when you put a toy block in front of a baby or a child. You put mm-hmm. a block, if you put a baby, a, a toy block in front of a baby, it'll magnetize them. A toy block, they'll stare at it. A toy block is very large to a baby. What, what is the anatomy of a toy block? It's this big, bulky, monolithic thing to a baby with an intricacy inside it. Anything that is big and monolithic, that's overwhelmingly understandable in your lizard brain before you have mm-hmm. a chance to think, that's connected to any sort of complexity, magnetizes attention. Uh, John Locke, the English philosopher who said that we were all born a tabula rasa, a blank slate, said that dice, uh, uh, toy blocks were the best way to teach kids uh, and, to, and to, for their learning and to make it a more enjoyable experience, mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing. What I have found is, so there is something, so the first thing you need to understand is anything um, busy in a, that you, you have to lead with something very, very simple, something that people can understand in their lizard brain before they have a chance to think. Anything busy in a world overloaded with content gets instantly discarded, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. So a, a toy, a, a block is basically this big monolithic thing that you can understand before you have a chance to think. And then when you repeat it over and over, and you can do this to one person, I could say, so, so why do we call a Kleenex a Kleenex or a Coke a Coke? We look at that as an accident of time, but mm-hmm. it's actually a process of rep, of monolithic repetition. And I explain the rules in that book so that rather I could take a turn something like a Coke, if you've never heard of it, and I could use it in repetition with you based on these simple primal laws in the book. And within five minutes, it would have the same relevance to you that a Coke does now, having heard about it your whole life. Mm -hmm. And you can do this with anything. And in this world overloaded with content, everything is broken down into tribes. We don't Mm -hmm. need a million people to be successful. If we have a thousand people that follow us, 5,000 people that follow us, 10,000 people that follow us, we can be astronomically successful. So right. all you need to do is use these tech, these monolithic simplicity, rep, these repetitive, repetitive monolithic uh, simplicity techniques to pull people into the full complexity of who you are. Mm-hmm. And if you do that for a thousand people, you've got a revenue stream. You're, right. bi- you're viable. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to start off talking about visual art, uh, which I talk about in the book. Then I'll get into music. And then I'll get then I'll get into and then I'll talk about it conceptually, and then I'll talk about it in terms of a business concept. So we'll Definitely. start off. Is that cool? Can I? Yeah. How am I Let, doing? Uh, you're doing great. Okay. Let's, um, for our listeners, just leaders, keep in mind, like this can be applied to your personal brand. Understand that, yes, you can get noticed in a lot of different ways, but you want your audience, your community, the people who you're here to serve to like, remember you, you want to make this simple for them to respond to you. Um, you don't want to be so busy and so distracting that you're just adding to the noise. Um, so this next bit where Jamie's going to dive into blocks and more details can be super important for you to, um, understand. So Jamie, take it away. Yeah. And I, and I'll, I'll, after I get through, I'll go, I'll give the, like the, Visual example, the music example, the conceptual example, then I'll give the business example, and then I'll talk about the difference between being seen and being remembered. Okay, Let's so, do that that. People, so that people can understand how you, how you create the memory part. Um, but okay, so in visual art, and again, this is a business book. I have a business publisher, this is, this is in a business category. Um, and uh, um, the largest, it won the OWL Award this year, or in 2019, at the end of 2019, the Outstanding Works in Literature, I was up against, in the business category, against people like Malcolm Gladwell, Safi Bacall, David Epstein. Um, uh, I think I, I went alongside Marie Forleo. Uh, but the BookPal, who's the largest e-commerce bookseller in the world, called it the best marketing and branding book uh, of the year. Okay, mm-hmm. um, But 
So this, let's talk about monolithic simplicity in, in the most simple sense of art, which we can all relate to, and then we'll move into business. So in terms of art, if, if you, um, in, in art or visual design, again, it's an image that you can understand before you have a chance to think. So I give mm -hmm. this example in the book of the two most powerful artists in our collective consciousness all over the world um, uh, before we even have a chance to think almost anyone, even if they didn't recognize a Picasso, they would recognize mm -hmm. a Warhol mm -hmm. or they would recognize a Vincent van Gogh. Now, mm -hmm. why is that? Are they the best artists? No, they use this monolithic thing that you can understand in your lizard brain before you have a chance to think they lead with that it, with Warhol. It's a soup can. It's right. a Marilyn. It's a Mao. It's a, banana it's a cow mm -hmm. it takes up the entire thing you understand it before you have a chance to think mm -hmm. then you look into the technique mm -hmm. with van gogh same thing it's a pair of boots it's a sunflower it's a bedroom it's a starry night it's a man with cob pipe it takes up the entire screen mm -hmm. or the entire canvas and you understand it before you have a chance to think and then it pulls you into the technique and the technique helps you be remembered but i'll get more into that when we get into the business side mm -hmm. so so they're not necessarily the best artists, but the artists that we remember in our um, uh, within our collective consciousness because they all they use blocks. A block is just something that you understand before you have a chance to think. That when I repeat it, it enters your mind and it stays there. Mm -hmm. Once it's I've repeated it, it stops being a block and it becomes an icon of your mind. Mm -hmm. It's now become an icon. So right. a block is just something iconic waiting to happen. It's the anatomy of an icon. Mm -hmm. Anything that we have in our head from the McDonald's arches uh, to the apple on the back of a Mac is mm -hmm. an icon because it's this simple thing that we understand in our lizard brain. It's been repeated enough. It's been taken into our minds. So the golden arches, before they were in our minds, it was a block. Now mm -hmm. that it's in our minds, it's an icon. So I differentiate between the two. Right. So you can see it as a mechanical process. Um, so that's what a block is in art or design. So right. Um, in in music, it would be a nursery rhyme type melody over a more complex arrangement. Mm -hmm. Anything that you can understand, uh, again, in your lizard brain, before you have a chance to think, to pull you into the complexity of a song or music. It's the reason Beethoven's da, 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 has right. lasted over three centuries. And as I say, you know, uh, I like to say why Michael Jackson's Mama say, Mama Simon Makusa. Mama say, Mama Simon Makusa. Mama say, Mama Simon Makusa. Lasts over, um, uh, it's so addictive, right? Yeah. And that's why in pop music, they call it the hook. Because mm -hmm. it hooks a, you in. Yeah, it doesn't give you a choice and it hooks you in. So that is the sonic equivalent of the image that you understand instantly before you have a chance to think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and this applies to every medium. It's a pattern. Okay, um, so uh, another example that I give, uh, and again, we in music, we call it a hook, mm -hmm. right? And uh, Beethoven and Mozart both use them. There's yeah. tons of incredible composers out there that didn't use them. And when you listen to their music, it's the most beautiful music in the world, but they don't like, they don't make their way. You need this monolithic anchor, no matter how talented and complex you are, that's repeated if you want to magnetize attention and to undeniably enter people's consciousness mm -hmm. so that you become the first and only choice. So a conceptual example that I give in the book is I talk about Martin Luther King's uh, famous I Have a Dream speech, mm -hmm. where he repeated the words, um, it's a very short speech of just over 1600 words and he repeats the words, I have a dream or let freedom reign approximately every 85 words, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and it is, the, it is the reason that that speech, I, again, I went to school, this international school in England, and people from Malaysia, China, Eastern Europe, um, Africa, everyone knows this speech. It's not an American speech. It is the mm -hmm. most famous speech in human history. And I would argue it's because there's this simple phrase that's repeated over and over, right? Mm -hmm. Mandela gave a lot of speeches and freed a nation Mm -hmm. um, but we don't know those speeches and we're probably the lesser for it because yeah. he didn't use blocks. Blocks are the sole reason we remember everything and they magnetize our attention like a tractor beam. Um, in this, in the chapter in the book where I talk about them in talking, this would apply to, you could apply this to an email, mm -hmm. a grant proposal, 
a business proposal, this magnetic emotional phrase that you repeat over mm -hmm. and over will cause you to become the first and only choice. 23 okay. years before Martin Luther King gave that speech on June 4th, 1940, Winston Churchill went before the House of Commons uh, to galvanize British, uh, the British people to stay the course against the Nazis. They were losing hope, they were being bombed. And uh, into which he gave his famous, um, which is now called uh, the, the We Shall Fight speech. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, that was his closer. And this was later aired, this speech, this part of the speech was later there that night, later aired that evening on the BBC in London, mm -hmm. in which Winston Churchill used the words, we shall fight over and over. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the landing grounds. We shall fight in the streets. We shall never surrender. We shall fight. Mm -hmm. We shall fight. We shall fight. Right? right. That the name of the, the name of the speech change. It is the second most famous speech of the 20th century, second only to the "I Have a Dream" speech. And mm -hmm. the reason reason we remember it is the monolithic emotional phrase. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do in life, your business exists. Your coaching practice your medical practice, you exist to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And that tribe of one to 10,000 people out there, look, th th whatever problem you're solving for them, whether it be medical or marketing, um, there's an emotional reason they're looking for you. So when you can find that emotional phrase, the best of what you have to offer, find something about, there's an intersect point between the best of you and the emotional, the emotional thing that your audience cares about. There's a, right. And when you find that and you repeat it over and over throughout the complex things you want to say, mm -hmm. um, they pay more attention to the complex things you want to say. They retain the complex things you want to say. Mm -hmm. They care about the complex things you want to say. They enjoy the complex things you want to say. So one of my favorite um, stories in the entire book uh, that I like to tell um, and I think it's really relevant now because of when it occurred. So the stories uh, occurred almost 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it occurred like now in an incredibly difficult time. Right now we're dealing with COVID and fires and, you know. Um, Everything. Yeah. I mean, you can go on and on. I want to, let's not, yeah, you can go on and on. That's another episode. Yeah, yeah it's a whole other episode. <laughs> Uh, and what we're going in, you know, we're, you know, we're, there's a lot of talk that we're likely going into a recession, which because of the mm -hmm. economic lockdown. So a lot of people go, you know, okay, we're going into a recession, you know, and they use that as an excuse. And again, I'm not here to give anyone a pep talk. I have a social science that is objective, right. but because of where I come from and my own point of view of how I climbed out of situations and who DD'd out of situations, my general outlook on life, Ruby, is that when the chips are down, I'm gonna do fucking double. Right. I don't always do double, but that's what it sparks in me. I don't roll over, I don't succumb. No, it ignites you. It, you know, it ignites me like, okay, we're going through a recession. Uh, all right, I'm gonna make myself indispensable and use this as an economic opportunity while my competition pulls back. That is how I think. Mm -hmm. But let's take it away from, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not special. If I did that, it was not because I thought I was special or particularly smart. At one point when I got into LSC, I remember my grandmother said, how are you doing this? Because she saw me just a few years earlier mm -hmm. taking remedial classes at a community college. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, I don't know. But the answer was what I was thinking in my head, you said I could swear. Uh, yes. <laughs> but the answer in my head is I'm fucking desperate. Right. Okay. So if I say, if, if I'm saying that I want to do double during the hard times, that comes from, that's rooted in desperation, not talkiness or mm -hmm. overconfidence, okay? Mm -hmm. So I wanna go back 100 years ago to the heart of the Great Depression uh, and tell you the story of a guy named Ted Houston, who in 1932, this guy, Ted Houston, in the heart of the Great Depression, had graduated from pharmacy school. And this guy had three goals in life. He wanted to own his own pharmacy, he wanted to raise a family, and he wanted to attend Catholic mass. Well, in, the, in 1932, a way worse time than now, mm -hmm. he inherited $3,000, okay, which would have been a, a lot of money back then. He took every dime and he bought a pharmacy in the small town of Wall, South Dakota, mm -hmm. okay? And in the heart of the Great Depression, it did not take Ted Houston very long to realize that this town of 327 people would, was busted broke and no one was coming into his pharmacy. Mm -hmm. 
and he started to panic and realized that maybe he'd squandered what could have kept him and him surviving during this time and really had severe anxiety about what his future was and that he would be able to accomplish these three simple things that he wanted for his life. So there was just zero people coming into his business. He had one advantage. There was an interstate that went by the town, Route 16A. Mm -hmm. And um, one day his wife, in, you know, in, the, in the heart of their depression, inside the depression, uh, his wife came to him and said, what is it that those people in those weathered jalopies you know, at the time need more than anything as they're driving by our town? And again, this is before air conditioning was mm -hmm. what it is. We're talking about 1932. And she said, they need ice water. They need cold ice water. So they concocted this scheme and that to build this giant billboard uh, that would say in massive letters that you can understand before you have a chance to think, mm -hmm. block, free ice water wall drug. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they went out to the interstate and started to erect this giant sign. Before they could even get back to the pharmacy, they were mobbed. And that you could say was the first viral campaign in America. Now, wall drug is an is a state landmark, if not a national landmark. During World War II, the Allied forces would have signs distanced wall drug. People have taken uh, wall drug signs, taken pictures of wall drug signs all over the world mm -hmm. since the 30s. You know, whether it's the Taj Mahal or the Great Wall of China. And today, wall drug is a thriving collection of buildings that include restaurants. Um, uh, uh, amusement park rides. It is a not, it's a state landmark uh, in uh, South Dakota. And uh, again, you, you could say it's the first viral campaign. So uh, the point of that is, is that if those got that, no matter what you do, there is a big monolithic concept like that, that if you communicate it in an oversized Sesame Street like mm -hmm. way, um, people will magnetize to you. And then if there's transparent truth and complexity interspersed with that, uh, which I explain how to do in the book, or you can even look up, you know, uh, you can get a lot from just going online and listen, you know, watching my TED talk or something. Hmm. Um, uh, you can magnetize attention under any circumstances. Yeah. And bringing this more into um, specificity for our listeners, Sure. What Jamie is saying is, and I see this all the time when leaders come to me uh, wondering, you know, why am I not being seen? Why am I not being heard? Uh, the ideas that you're trying to convey are too complex for people to really hold on to. And sure, the work that you're doing is highly transformational, really deep, profound work and super complex. And people are not going to hold on to that complexity they will hold on to, however, a, a, like what I call like a potent version, but like a simplified version of what it is that you do, a simplified version of your message, something that is simple, easy to remember, easy to hold on to, easy to understand. And then you bring the complexity, complexity in it. I, I think the problem is that people want to go super complex too fast because they want everyone to understand what, what it is that they do, but then that I, misses the mark. Even more than that, like if you're a person that under, believes in craft and you work hard and you believe you have something really valid to offer the world, mm -hmm. to your point, Ruby, I think that you want to, you want to share it all. You want to share all 25 yeah. things that you do, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so you share 25 things, then people see nothing. But also when we strip it down to that one emotional thing that's going to actually cause people to look at us, a lot of people say they want that, mm -hmm. but then when they get it, it makes them feel very uncomfortable when they have the white hot heat or mm -hmm. eyes on them, the white yep. heat of eyes on them. It makes you feel naked. Mm -hmm. People don't want to commit to this monolithic thing that they know everyone cares about mm -hmm. because then everyone's staring at them. A true iconist as I say in the book, pushes past that discomfort and does it anyway. And mm -hmm. I have done this for countless businesses mm -hmm. um, and seen it work over and over and over again. Um, it's almost like, uh, you know, a Jedi mind trick, but it's not. It's objective. It's the way that we as human beings all prefer to take in information. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples I give and I, and I like to explain is like, 
that when we talk, when we're teaching children or communicating to children, we communicate in these really simple, um, overly uh, oversized Sesame Street type ways, like mm -hmm. massive pie charts and diagrams. And then the words are smaller, the lesson. And what, what, what brain science shows us is the part of our brain that lights up when we're looking at visual imagery mm -hmm. is several times larger than when we're studying something complex. So visual imagery literally is the magnet. Mm -hmm. so the oversized statement is mm -hmm. the magnet. Mm -hmm. um, but as we get above elementary learning, we stop communicating to each other in elementary ways. Yeah. And what I'm, what I'm arguing in the Iconist is that adults crave this elementary childlike communication that hooks into our emotional core mm -hmm. even more than children do. Yeah. And I would even go further to say that in a world where you're bombarded with so much, if you land on a website when there's a hundred million choices mm -hmm. or a, a, a 50 million choices or a million choices or 50,000 choices, right? Um, I've, I, if I have a weird name, if I typed in my name right now, there'd be millions of choices. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I go through the first, and you know, I go through uh, 10 choices and I see one it's just oversized. The entire website is a two thirds of a statement that speaks to my emotional core. Yeah. I'm going to, that's the one where I'm going to stop and look. Mm -hmm. Right. That makes, sure. that makes sense. Right. So yep. as we get above, so that kind of communication, that oversized communication that speaks to uh, what we actually care about becomes an oasis. It becomes soothing. Mm -hmm. um, in a world overloaded with content, people are searching for someone that's just going to like, Give me the reason why mm -hmm. I should do a deep dive on you. Otherwise, they just skip over it like a stone on top of water. Exactly. Right? And that's why you're not being seen and that's why you're not being heard. Um, so simply put, you got to stop overcomplicating everything and stop trying to describe everything you do on like the first page of your website, for example, or in like one image on a social media post and simplify it and make it easy to digest. Um, Jamie, I feel like I could talk on this forever. Um, and we are also at the end of the episode. So I'm okay. going right. to say this um, for our listeners who want more. I highly, highly, highly recommend that you read the book, The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out. The link to that plus more links are going to be in the show notes. So grab your copy today. And Jamie, if there's like one simple block-like message that you could leave our listeners with one thought, what would that be? You will be a more fulfilled human. If you can get, if you can attract the attention that you want for your genuine self at will, that you would just want for yourself at will. If you know you can control that, you will be a better human and a better actor and a more effective person in the world. I love it. Um, Jamie, thank you so much for just sharing your wisdom and your presence and um, really the, the art of standing out with me and our listeners today. I really, really appreciate you and uh, appreciate your book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. And um, yeah. to our listeners, uh, thank you so much for joining me and Jamie on uh, today's Thought Leader, where we are challenging you to rise up, speak up, and create a movement. If you liked this episode, please be sure to drop a rating and review on iTunes and follow us online. Hit us up on social media. If you enjoyed this episode, the links, um, all of our links will be in the show notes. And if you have any questions or you just want to say hi, please do reach out to me on social media at I am Ruby. You can also reach out to Jamie, Jamie underscore mustard on IG. He's also on LinkedIn under his name, Jamie mustard. And my website, you could send me an email. Yes. I love to hear from people and, yes. you'll always, and, you, and I always respond. So the website is theiconist.org. And again, the clickable link will be in the show notes. Thank you, everyone. And I'll see you back here next Monday for a brand new episode of Today's Thought Leader.